Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, June 4th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. <laughs> and executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I seem to have a frog in my throat. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so for the second straight month, uh, we have a disappointing and troubling uh, jobs report. Um, Not as shocking as the one that came out in May for April, but um, uh, a big miss in terms of expectations. People thought there would be something like, I don't know, 650,000 new jobs, and there were 550,000 new jobs. And the most interesting aspect of it, if you dig into it, is how few of the jobs are in fields and areas that we are told are booming. Uh, that is uh, construction and retail. So, uh, um, and hospitality. And hosp- no, no, no. Hospitality is booming. Hospitality oh, yeah, is the source yeah. of most of the jobs. It's apparently there are just very few jobs in construction, which you would think would not be the case because, of course, we hear that there is a construction boom everywhere with um you know with uh people just desperate to to renovate and build houses and stuff like that and all the uh, goods and materials are going way up in price and so that should also include you know a mad rush into the field because there are so many jobs and now we're back to the big question which is of course why is that not the case and uh we're back to the question of whether or not the um absolutely demented unemployment insurance decisions made in the uh, CARES Act uh, are now directly interfering with uh, the, you know, economic and and jobs recovery of the United States. The fact that the federal government is supplementing state unemployment insurance by hundreds of dollars a week and will do so until the end of September. That was clearly playing a role in uh, last month's report, there would be absolutely no reason not to believe that it's not playing a role in this month's report. We have a competition for, um, you know, people, if people can get paid to stay home, uh, particularly when you're talking about, you know, physical labor, why would they take a job that uh, pays them about the same as the unemployment insurance uh, would be would be paying them. Well, first we should address the pieties uh, on, that the Democrats are going to appeal to here. Um, <clears throat> you know, you're you're you can already hear them saying, "Oh, not enough construction, infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure," ignoring entirely the exorbitant cost of materials, which is probably putting a lot of downward pressure on that sort of economic activity. But um, examining this report. New York Times uh, economic correspondent Neil Irwin uh, identified a troubling trend that uh, labor force participation rates, the number of people who are actually in the workforce or actively looking for work, declined from um, May or declined over the course of May, um, which he says is consistent with the idea that people are just holding back, not not reentering the workforce in mass despite reopenings, despite economic performance. And you can't simply legislate that into existence. You can legislate it out of existence, but you can't, um, you know, just flip a switch, pass a whole, a trillion dollar infrastructure package and expect people to just pour into the workforce. You know, no, that's an important point. And apparently president Biden is going to speak, uh, at some point, uh, this morning, uh, we're, we're taping this at nine o'clock, uh, Eastern time. 
apparently sometime in the 10, 11 o'clock hour, he is going to talk. And you know what he's going to say, because you're talking about the pieties. The pieties are, don't you, you know, sort of like otter in, in, in animals. I'm like, don't you run down the United States of America. Americans love to work. Americans want to work. Americans, are, doggone it. We're the workingest worky country in the whole history of work. Uh, and that's really wonderful and, you know, will make for a good 15-second moment of sugar rush. But, of course, that's not the story here. The story is uh, the question of whether or not you have, we have created in, the, in, the, in this form of government policy an absolutely psychotic incentive that was wildly predictable because a lot of people predicted it. And uh, here we are, because uh, Democrats holding on to their pieties about um, the suffering working class and their and their and their hunger, their hunger to send checks to directly to the American people. Uh, Andrew Yang, mayoral candidate for New York City, uh, in the mayoral debate on Wednesday, w- walked around very sort of pr- proudly. Didn't walk around, but you know, because he was at a, at a podium but, um, at a lectern. But um, saying, you know, people uh, weren't talking about cash relief until I started a, a national movement for, you know, direct cash relief, uh, you know, in, in 2020. And he's not exactly right, but he's not exactly wrong. I mean, that is to say, I think that the, the, uh, we crossed some kind of Rubicon with the, um, with, the, with the crisis over the pandemic in which the possibility of using the federal coffer to write, to send people money directly to their homes, to say it's okay, it's great. This is what this is the kind of relationship we want between the federal government and the people of the United States. That subventions come directly from the treasury, and um, and and so they got you know this was kind of like a desideratum, and they got it, and then they wanted more of it, and they got more of it, and zygazun to them because here we are with a ridiculously slow job market at a time when everybody on earth said we would be exploding. The okay, GDP this, would be exploding. Okay. But this is where I think there, there are two tensions uh, playing on, on the Democratic side of the aisle here that, that this will eventually expose. I think Biden's going to get away with whatever he says this morning. He'll get away with it for one more month. He did it last month with jobs and they've done it with inflation. This argument that, you know, it's just transitory. Everybody stay calm. There's really nothing to see here. We're going to have these little ups and downs as we emerge stronger, building back better, blah, blah, blah. The point, though, is that the trend line is going to continue at least through September, because, as John said, because the payments will continue through September, even as some red state governors uh, get rid of their state level ones, there'll still be the payouts. But there's another. So he's not going to be able to maintain the rhetoric and the and the pieties, as Noah said, for very much longer. On the other hand, you have this real debate going on on the progressive left attacking centrist Democrats about the value and meaning of work. Should is work something intrinsically valuable, which has been Lunchpill Joe's, you know, campaign stump speech, but isn't actually embraced by the progressive left. They think that these jobs are ter- a lot of these jobs are terrible, demeaning, and people shouldn't have to do them. They should instead be able to live full lives on on the taxpayers' dime. So that debate you see rearing its head um, in stories like one that came out in the Washington Post recently. 
that although this happened, I think, a month or so ago, they're now reporting that Biden did call Larry Summers, centrist Democratic economist, to talk about inflation and to talk about jobs issues. This angers the progressives. They don't like those guys who say these things. Um, so that tension is something that I think so far Biden has avoided, but he won't be able to avoid for much longer. Well, while we're on the liberal tension, uh, liberal pieties, rather, um, I'll, I'll just add my um, uh, bit to the list. Um, something else that liberals have been saying about uh, the economy for the past few months is that, well, uh, if you're not seeing people getting jobs in um, uh, the service industry, uh, and in fact, you're, you're seeing them move, this was supposedly the case before, as John says, the, we, we saw the numbers today, um, if, you, if you drill down, they're moving from the service industry into things like construction because the service industry won't pay a living wage, right? Um, well, I, I guess that's not happening. Right. And, and look, we have a very complex economy trying to find one-to-one answers for uh, for these complicated things that are often revised. The numbers are revised. They get things wrong and all of that. Um, you know, you want to be prudent in your, in your interpretations, but in, in large, broad macroeconomic, the large, broad macroeconomic picture, the question was, we saw a deliberate, conscious and purposeful suppression of economic activity in 2020. Those barriers and blockades are being lifted. We are going to see. So there are two things that have to happen. One of which is. Uh, or or should happen, one of which is we're just getting back to par. That is getting back to a position in which people are employed the way they were, people are earning salaries the way they did, uh, there's discretionary income uh, that people can use to buy things that they want and, and all of that. And that should, that should be, uh, you know, a boon to the economy, right? That's that's one thing. And right now, that apparently is going more slowly than people would have anticipated, given how deep the hole was. I don't I don't know how many pieties we're up to now, probably like five <laughs> or six. <clears throat> but I've got it's a the I've piety a, show. I've got, a, I've got a seventh or eighth. Okay. Um we can't go back to normal because normal wasn't good enough, right? Um so over the course of the last year, the Dallas Fed as I'm looking at a chart right now, it's very interesting. Dallas Fed has been monitoring what people say, you know, when they want to return to work, who, whether they're willing to return to their previous job, same pay, same hours. And at the beginning of the pandemic, the summer of last year, really, it was, pre, you know, pretty much everybody was willing to go back to their, to their old job. And that's been steadily declining now to the point where it's roughly almost, you know, 30 percent, maybe, you know, more if you count the people who are kind of unsure close to 50% of people who don't want to return to their old job, same hours, same pay, same work. And that kind of makes sense because at this point, if you're not back at your old job, you're not going back. You don't want to go back and you don't have to go back because we've created a safety net around this idea that you can re, you know, return to, to a, not to normal, but to a, a new normal, a better normal. And this is going to sound really heartless, but maybe they need to be disabused of that notion. Right. Well, you know, we are seven and a half million jobs under where we were before the pandemic started. Getting back to normal would be pretty damn good. That's seven and a half million jobs we need to be created just to get back to par. 
I mean, think about this. We're wandering around talking about building back better and you know, everything should, you know, we can't go back to the way things used to be. Well, you know, how about let's get back to the way things used to be and then build from there. Like you're, you're talking about this. It's like um, there's a great moment in Jeanette Walls' memoir, The Glass Castle, which is a, which is a story of her of her uh, rearing by these fantastically irresponsible, bizarrely irresponsible parents. And at some point she comes into some money and she says to her parents who are living as street people, she drives by uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan or something and she sees them taking stuff out of a garbage can and she has been turning her back on them. She doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And so she, but she feels guilty. She needs to help them. And she reaches out to them and she says to them, okay, let me help you. What do you need? You know, I'm now in a position to help you. What do you need? And her parents who are like dumpster diving, they were dumpster diving that day, say, uh, you know, a million dollars would be good. So, I mean, that's a little like this build back better theory. It's like, Okay, so here we are. We lost, you know, twenty per. You know, we had a GDP drop in one quarter of like close to a third of the economy. We're seven and a half million jobs down, and we're like, you know, what really need like six trillion dollars in spending. You know what? Like, get back to a normal functioning economy that has not been interrupted by a pandemic. And then we'll see, because then also money will flow into the treasury from tax, you know, receipts and all that, and we can see what we can do with the money that we have. There's also, I I hate to put it this way, but I, I, because I I will sound heartless, as Noah says, but there's there are habits of mind that people begin to create for themselves and their loved ones um, when they don't work. And not and there's a different habit of mind when you're actively searching for work, eager to have a job, you want to make a living, you want to support your family versus I can cash this check. Everybody else is doing it. The job I had kind of sucked anyway. So, you know, this is this is my new normal. But it's very difficult as the months and the years go by to bring those people back into productive work. And for them at the moment by moment, they might think that's yeah, a pretty good deal. I mean, I have everything I want, but I also don't have to work for some terrible boss doing work I don't like. But over time, there is a kind of pernicious uh, effect on their overall view of work, and they, that those are values they'll inculcate in their children. These are these are a challenge for uh, civic health. These these things really do matter. And I think the weird gaslighting that the Biden administration is doing with regard to praising the dignity of work on the one hand, while constantly throwing money at people not to work on the other, is also bad for civic health. And I think this also gets to the uh, essentially improvisatory nature of the Biden administration's policies that 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 we've talked about a little bit here but a lot of people are now starting to write about this uh there's a great piece by Matt Connetti today in the Free Beacon Rich Lowry had a great piece in Politico on Wednesday or Thursday and it is this which is that um Biden had a whole rhetorical line about how we were going to function and then and a lot of it seemed to be based in the general expectation that maybe, you know, they wouldn't, you know, they would be in the kind of position where they weren't going to be able to get that much done because of the political exigencies of the moment. And then uh, election day came, he wins, the House 
is an incredible disappointment for Democrats because Republicans pick up 15 seats. And then the Senate is genuinely, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate because of the Georgia, the two Georgia runoffs. Um, the logic, the rhetoric that, 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 uh, Christine, that you talked about was the rhetoric of a moderate saying, let's do what we can to help people and da, 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 da. Then they win the two Georgia specials. They have a zero seat margin of, victory in the Senate, but with the vice president's tie-breaking vote. And suddenly, you know, they're Clement Attlee. Suddenly we're, you know, suddenly we're in sort of like labor socialism land. And, um, and so these things don't come together properly. Bernie Bernie Sanders laid the groundwork for a presidency like this in his campaign, but he didn't win the presidency. And now we have Biden, who is talking like, you know, lunch pail Joe. And we have this kind of, um, you know, again, like I, I don't know what you would what you would call it—a kind of uh, implicitly sort of direct government subvention of individual incomes on a mass scale in a way that is not common for the American political experiment. And, and we really have no reason other than the fact that Biden's approval numbers are, 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 are better than Trump's. They're fine. They're, they're decent. People seem to like him in general rather than not like him. But um, I don't know who's buying this. Like, I, you know, we still, here we are. Biden doesn't know what to say or do about the general approach of this insane $6 trillion spending spree that he wants to go on, because he wants to do it without any kind of national consensus behind it, as we know from the fact that he even last week started attacking the two Democratic Democratic senators who are somehow standing in the way of various efforts for being too much like Republicans. Six months into his presidency, he is going at the swing votes in the Senate, turning them against him. I mean, if you think about this kind of like, if you read Twitter, you can see it all the time. Liberals are like Tommy Vietor, the taxi, the the Obama taxi driver who has somehow become a podcast bro moron saying, What's the point of being Joe Manchin, having Joe Manchin in the Senate if he's not going to vote for everything we want? Joe Manchin is a miracle for the Democratic Party. He is a Democratic senator from a state that Trump won by 39 points. Joe Manchin has no business being in the Senate in the Democratic Party. It is a miracle that he is there. It is a miracle that Kristen Sinema who only won by 10,000 votes, you know, is, is, is a senator who wants to keep her seat. It is a miracle that Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, who won by 0.17% of the vote, is there in a state that is a total purple. And Democrats... That's exactly, but that's a better a point you need to, like, lean into, actually, because Go ahead. <laughs> both Cinema and Manchin sort of are this gravity well that absorb all this criticism that would otherwise be directed at people like Mark Kelly, like Maggie Hassan, who would probably be just as reticent to jump on these programs to destroy the filibuster, for example, 
because of the political backlash that they would endure, but they don't receive the kind of scrutiny and nowhere near the amount of criticism from the left because Joe Manchin's taking all of it. And why and shouldn't, shouldn't he? It why helps shouldn't him. He? Exactly. It helps him. He is the guy who is saving America. In He can go whenever. I mean, look, he's he's pretty old. I, you know, I don't know whether he's going to run again in 2024 or not, however it works. But he, Manchin, is standing there saying, I am the, I am the shock absorber. I am not going to let these people go absolutely crazy. And the more he gets attacked, the more independent he looks in the state that went for Trump by the largest margin in the entire United States. And these idiots, these idiots are standing there going, what's the point of having a Democratic majority? The point of having a Democratic majority is not to do what you're doing if the Democratic majority is the one that you have. Try to figure out how to do things that will Manchin will come on board with. Have an infrastructure package that is way, 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 way smaller. Here's uh, an idea. Like, but and then see, maybe he'll vote for it. But you see, you've, you've missed the decisive sort of mental and emotional shift that happened on, on, among the Democrats during Trump. And that's this idea that, you know, you, it's not just that you have to negotiate with your political uh, allies and enemies to get, to get to some point of compromise that can then be passed uh, by Congress. You are actually, you, you already occupy the moral high ground by having a D after your name. You care about democracy and the other party doesn't. Look what happened on January 6th. The whole mindset shift, I think, it doesn't infect every member of the Democratic Party, obviously, but it has led to this very high-handed, technocratically elite way, not just of governing or trying to govern, but of talking about governance from the party that we're often reminded is the party of governance, supposedly. So I think that that's actually been a very toxic side effect of, of the Trump years for the Democrats. Right. Um, and again, some of it's justifiable and understandable, but I think it's been very bad for Biden's attempts to actually govern as, a, as, a, as the centrist that he was elected to be. Right. But look, look, let's go back to 2001 kind of an eerily similar situation in in 2001. George uh, George W. Bush becomes president after the Florida, uh, you know, after the Supreme Court calls a halt to the, you know, incessant Florida recounts. Uh, Democrats think that he's illegitimate, or a lot of Democrats think he's illegitimate, but he is now president. 50-50 Senate, uh, uh, almost exactly the same situation. And then in the spring or summer, whenever it was, a Republican senator, Jim Jeffords, goes independent and caucuses with Democrats. Before then, before then, or as this was going on, Bush got two things because he was at least the new president and he did have the House. So uh, he got a tax cut because he was the new president. You could then say that's sort of what the CARES Act was for Biden. And they got No Child Left Behind, which was a piece of legislation that will be analogous to the infrastructure bill if they get an infrastructure bill because it was intensively negotiated with a Democratic senator who was the bridge, and that was that was Ted Kennedy, right? So two pieces of legislation. And then Bush's presidency in the absence of 9-11 would have been a legislative disaster. He would have had two choices. He would, he, he, would, he would have had to really, really, really cooperate with the Democrats. Or he could have done sort of like what Obama did and kind of go hammer and tongs against them. 
let's say. 9-11 changed everything and created, there was no... So let us assume that there is not going to be a 9-11 repeat. Biden has run out of... This is what Continetti says, and this is what uh, what Rich Lowry says. Biden has run out of runway. He has gotten what he can get. The internal contradictions of the Democratic Party are beginning to show. They want this insane... Uh, federalization of, uh, of of elections or, you know, nationalization of election rules uh, in contravention of 240 years of American history. Um, they want all kinds of stuff that they, that they, A, they can't get, and B, they shouldn't even be trying to get politically because they are just handing Republicans, they're just throwing softball pitches right down the middle for Republicans to hammer out of the park for the next, you know, 18 months or however long it is till the, to, till the 2022 election. And um, Biden doesn't seem to know this. And what's more, the results, the results of his policies are not producing, or the, the, the facts of his policies are not producing, as the jobs report suggests, the results that he needs to be able to say, look, I'm having a really successful presidency. You should get on my side. Instead, like Grandpa Simpson, he's attacking Mansion and Cinema. Like that—that that doesn't make sense. To, I don't understand what game they're playing. Except maybe they're not playing a game at all. I mean, my friend Mark Halperin has this newsletter. He says, "Boy, Ron Klain, he's smart. He's got all these kind of in, you know in secret internal plans." I don't know. I think they're just kind of like from from the Georgia runoffs on. They're just improvising. They don't have plans. They don't know where they're going. Uh, they're 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 playing. They're you know. It's like okay, let's see how far we can get with what we have. But that's not a plan. That's not a long range plan to solidify your political support and get things done. And we keep talking about this under promise over deliver strategy that everybody seems to think is just so genius. I mean, it's been six months. Wouldn't you expect them to have generated some kind of? sympathy or enthusiasm or thanks and gratitude for meeting these marks that they set for themselves months in advance. Like, wouldn't you expect them to have gotten some people would say, Oh, you know what? They only said small gatherings by July 4th was the objective. And look at where we are now. Thank God for the Biden administration. I don't, I don't detect that. Uh, Well, I don't, I don't think people cite, you know, the specifics of it. But I think some sort of a, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but like some sort of a general yeah, like there's, sense in the ether. Right. But I don't get that either. I kind of do. I mean, you know, I, you, you see it out there that um, the association of low COVID numbers now generally uh, in the country with Biden being the president is um, seen as some kind of direct result of the administration's actions. And, right. you know, I, 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 I thank, thank God we have a. A, a rational uh, person in, in the White House now. But see, that's I, I agree with Abe. You, I get a lot of that here in D.C. in the in the uh, Beltway suburbs. You hear a lot of gratitude for the fact that it's not Trump, which is actually what elected Biden in the first place. But every time the the Biden administration's policies come up against a special interest group in the Democratic Party, and there's a clash, like teachers unions and reopening schools, or you know discussions about you know what else can reopen uh, in terms of businesses and, and capacity limits and whatnot, then you start to see frustration with the Biden administration because everything they do is talked about in these sweeping ways, right. rather than when it comes to the specifics. Again, it goes to this: he says one thing, says one thing, and governs another way. 
Um, and people are noticing that contradiction on the issues that matter to them, at least for now. Right. Well, two two things about that. One one is, I mean, it doesn't hurt. Like it's obviously it's not hurting him. Uh, COVID the COVID numbers are good, and it's not hurting him. And he's there. And um, however, you would fit the COVID numbers should be in direct proportion or response or you know or the leading indicator of the economic boom that so far hasn't quite and the employment boom that as we began this podcast really hasn't hasn't happened yet because they advocated a policy that interfered with that that got in the way of it now maybe maybe that just is a delay right i mean maybe they'll they'll play out the string till till september 24th that'll be the end of the federal subvention and then the employment boom will start then who knows and so maybe that's even better politically because it's closer to the 2022 election but who knows i'm just saying like they this notion that they're, you know, that they're puppeteers and they're gaming a lot of this out, I, I, I think, like I said, I think that they are just, you know, playing fifty-two pickup, and and they don't. It's whatever it is, and and whatever can happen, and whatever they need to say that day. It's more like Trump in that respect than we give than we sort of imagine. It's a more haphazard political administration. It's not chaotic. But it is haphazard. I, I think you could say that they're doing something that's working um, in this sense um, as evidence, not by uh, overt appreciation that we that that's out there necessarily, but by indicated by a lack of outrage. Right. Um, there are many things that that have gone on since Biden's presidency that 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 there, people should be screaming about. I mean the. The ongoing crisis of the bo- at the border, which which you know he he essentially said uh, you, you're not allowed to look at it now. You can look at it when we fix it, and everyone kind of agreed. You know yeah. they they sort of stopped. Um, the the fact that he did intervene and and obstruct the 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 economic recovery. Um, it's yeah. It's no who is outraged. You know. Right. Well, and you know McKay Coppins had a piece in the Atlantic this week about how uh, I mean. This is a presumption, and we'll see whether whether it holds over time. But um, that outrage gap is like a, a problem for the right wing outrage machine. Uh, some of which is, you know, uh, uh, shows itself in American publishing. Right? We should be already starting to see books about, you know, Biden the totalitarian. Biden is, you know, leading us down a path to, you know, national self destruction. Blah 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 blah. And somehow you can already tell it doesn't quite have the juice, right? It doesn't, you know, um, and, and part of that is because we can't decide, people on the right can't decide whether Biden is a, you know, is a, you know, is a secret hidden Bernie Sanders or if he's a senile, uh, you know, front man for somebody or if he's just a kind of doddering guy who likes ice cream and is happy to be sitting in the, you know, in the Oval Office, uh, how these pictures don't, you know, they don't add up to a, you know, monster, you know, a villain uh, who needs to be extirpated yet. I mean, stuff can stuff can happen. Um, speaking of interesting governments and uh, and the and their and their composition and the future. Um, our friend Dan Sinor, uh, that podcast post-corona I've been telling you about for months, uh, an effort to portray what the world will be like as the virus recedes, Dan has a special podcast today 
and uh, I, I listened to it, and it's it's pretty remarkable. A couple of years ago, at the 92nd Street Y in New York, he interviewed Naftali Bennett, who is likely to be the next prime minister of Israel. Um, and uh, the conversation uh, is essentially has been repurposed to be this week's post-corona broadcast. And if you are interested in who this very, very original and unusual figure is, Naftali Bennett, son of Americans, uh, Israeli tech entrepreneur, explains that his his uh, tech company, uh, which he ran before he entered politics, uh, created the software that um, identifies you as yourself when you log on to your bank uh, to, um, you know, uh, to look at your bank accounts. Like it is, it, it's the root software that verifies that you are who you say you are. And, and, and therefore it was a wildly successful piece of software that was sold all, all around the world. And then he went into politics and, um, and, and who he is as a, uh, as a religious Jew who is not an ultra religious Jew, but is rather somebody who, as they say in Israel, wears a knit kippah uh that is he he wears a you know he 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 is a uh he's an openly religious jew um but uh is not uh, is not ultra orthodox and is a nationalist uh who uh does not believe that there should be a palestinian state but wants to um improve the lives not only of arab israeli citizens but of arabs on the west bank and in gaza to the extent possible uh, he's a very interesting character, not the least of which because he, his party won a very small number of seats in the last election, seven out of 120 in the Knesset, and yet he has maneuvered himself into the position in which he is going to be the prime minister, the first prime minister of this broad-based coalition that is going to run the country uh, at least for a year before uh, he surrenders the prime ministership to. Yair Lapid, whose party actually got 19 seats, and so you would think theoretically should have been the one to get the first job. I, w- people are very skeptical that this coalition will hold. It is a jury rigged thing. It's and and like what Christine was saying about Biden and his coalition, uh, the the coalition that has formed here is a coalition that exists for one purpose and one purpose only, which is to get Bibi Netanyahu out of power. Once Bibi Netanyahu is out of power, how on earth they're going to hold together for more than 11 minutes, that is the big challenge. And we don't know how that's going to work. But if you listen to Naftali Bennett talk, you hear how intelligent he is, how thoughtful he is, how interesting he is. You can kind of understand how how he how he pulled this off. That's the post-corona podcast with Dan Senor. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, download it and listen, and you will be able to tell your friends much more about this person who may become a major political figure over the next year. That's the Post-Corona Podcast with Dan Senor, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Let's talk about another friend of ours, Noah, because uh, we talked about Matt Continetti, course, columnist for Commentary. We talked about Rich Lowry, a dear friend, editor of National Review. So our friend Charlie Cook, uh, also of National Review, took to the pages, or the, the not the pages, the virtual pages of nationalreview.com yesterday. Uh, he is not a reporter. He is a he is a he is a an essayist, a, a, a proffer of opinion. 
but um, turns out Charlie uh, has had some very direct experience uh, with uh, a key uh, news story uh, of the moment that he has now uh, verified of a, of a certainty. Um, what is that? Well, our friend, the August Charles C.W. Cook, is not only a great writer and a great editor, but he is a proud Florida man. And he's one of, uh, of a select few who likely has a few uh, sources within the orbit of the former president, Donald Trump. I think it was Monday that I brought this to the show. Uh, Maggie Haberman at the New York Times had reported and a CNN reporter had reported that Donald Trump had fully internalized the idea that events would turn in a direction such that he would be reinstated to the presidency sometime in the end of August. And, you know, we were just we sort of made note of this as though it was interesting, but not something that was confirmed and therefore shouldn't, we shouldn't dwell on it. The Washington Post has since confirmed that the president is saying stuff like this. And Charles uh, Cook's sources are saying something very similar to him to the point that he is entirely and wholly convinced that Donald Trump not only says this in order to, you know, as some sort of instrumental utility for him politically, but also that he really buys it. Um, and I don't have any reason to believe that all these people confirming this are being misled. Ala Pundit over at Hot Air, my former colleague, um, who's, you know, got a, a sharp head on his shoulders and a good analyst, thinks, you know, that this is the sort of thing that, um, you know, maybe that this is, you know, just just something that he like convinced himself to believe. But according to Charles's reporting, and nevertheless, he, he believes it. And according to Charles's reporting, you know, this is something that he's probably going to end up saying. And and so Alapan says, well, maybe they're, the people around him are just trying to get this out there now to dissuade the president from saying this on the stump when he returns to his campaign style rallies over the summer. Maybe. Um but it doesn't really matter because it is so off the charts bonkers, so out of the realm of anything resembling reality that it's it's one of those things that you don't you don't really realize how it can stand, how it could possibly stand. And last night I saw something that I thought was very interesting. Former Vice President Mike Pence um, was delivering comments uh, at, at a speech in New Hampshire um, in which he talked about January 6th. And he said the following quote. As I said on that day, January 6th is a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. But thanks to the swift action of Capitol Police and law enforcement, violence was quelled. The Capitol was secure. And that same day, we reconvened the Congress and did our duty in the Constitution of the United States. You know, President Trump and I have spoken many times since we left office, and I don't know if we'll ever see eye to eye on that day. So this will be dismissed as insufficient, derided as um, sort of the sort of thing that you would, you know, low stakes way to acknowledge the reality that we all understand to be the truth. But I think this is this is a pretty profound moment, or could be at least, by describing the events of that day as dark and t- calling them violent and saying that me and the, and the president of the United States do not share the same narrative, the same version of events, the sequence of events that occurred there, are not, that mine is not his. That's very subtly schismatic. Uh, it's the sort of thing that produces uh, distance that of the sort that Republicans have been very cautious about establishing between Donald Trump and himself. And maybe it's maybe it goes away. But maybe it doesn't because the people around Donald Trump don't forgive anything remotely resembling independence. 
particularly people around his orbit or okay. formerly around his orbit. Okay, let me ask. So, I mean, this this might be the this might be the thing. I mean, even Byron York was saying that this is the sort of thing that would really force people to break. And we all should be really skeptical of that because we've seen we've, we've been anticipating that and it never comes. But maybe this is it. Okay, so I got two I got two questions for for you guys. Uh, Mike Pence says he's talked to Trump many times. And they'll never see I.I. It was a dark day. This comment came after these news reports. It came after Maggie Haberman said she heard that Trump thinks he's going to be reinstated in August. Which, by the way, is the theory that has been promulgated by such constitutional scholars as the My Pillow guy and Kraken Sidney Powell and people on Reddit and QAnon and, uh, and, and whatever, right? So Maggie says... Trump's been retailing this. And then Charlie Cook says, everything that I can tell tells me that Trump is not only retailing it, but believes it. Pence, that very day, goes out and says, September 6th was dark. It was violent. It was a terrible day. Trump and I will never see eye to eye. Pence is a craven coward, a completely inauthentic politician, that he went out and said this, and has talked to Trump over the last six months, I think is, I don't know what you would call it, um, kind of suggestive evidence that he knows that Trump, and I'm now going to say something that will offend people, not only in substance, but in the language I'm about to use, that Trump has gone batshit crazy. Well, and I, that can... it is not a bad idea now to separate himself from Trump because he's hearing on the phone what Trump is now retailing to a lot of other people and that he's going to start going around talking about how Hillary Clinton is drinking adrenochrome and even Molly Hemingway is going to have to say, oh, I'm sorry, that, that just goes a little too far. But, you know, you know, the word that Pence used that I think is even more uh, telling than than dark or we don't see eye to eye. It was the word constitutional, the phrase constitutional duty, because uh, and Charlie goes into this in, in his piece, which everyone should go read. Uh, he talks about how even if you accept all of these crazy, you know, uh, possibilities that, that Trump wants to float there, we do not have a constitutional mechanism for reinstating a president. It cannot be done. So the idea, so I don't think it's, I think Noah's right that this is uh, the beginning of some sort of clear effort to to separate himself uh, from Trump. But the I, but but there's also this other aspect to the Trump story this week, which is that his from the desk of Donald J. Trump blog went belly up, evidently because he was upset that he wasn't getting more engagement with this, this, uh, this new medium. Um, he, you know, he could the, the other direction, the hopeful direction, I think, for those of us who've, who've had enough of the Trump crazy, is that he goes back to being a, a rather more high-profile version of Donnie from Queens phoning into the talk radio show, right? He can keep saying this stuff. He can keep trying to have public events. And I think the public events this summer will be another testing ground for, for a lot of what we're talking about. Will people show up? What will the enthusiasm level be? How crazy will he get on stage? Um, how much does it look like he's able to rebuild an organization that would allow him to run again? These are all the questions I think we should be watching this summer. Uh, <clears throat> there's a, and there's a dangerous prospect in, in, in that as well, because um, if he is in fact, you know, at this, at the beginning stages of a campaign, <laughs> to um, get himself reinstated um, uh, supposedly, you know, by this, 
the end of the summer, by August, right? Uh, what happens if he does uh, go on that campaign and it fails, which it must? Um, then what? Then then where are we? Do is there a, is there a, a, what what level of outrage will will we see among those who bought into it? Well, if passed this prologue, what we're going to see is a lot of Republicans wringing their hands, a lot of even Trump supporters saying, oh, this is, you know, this is impractical. Um, and then he goes out on the stump and says it and they'll say, well, maybe he's got a point. Well, uh, th- OK, so l- let me give you a, a contrary data point on that. Now, I, the one I'm giving you is from a writer from Salon. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not I can't vouch for its, you know, I, I would be worried about vouching for its accuracy, except I don't know what what virtue there would be in him uh, getting this wrong. His name is Zachary Patrizzo, and he tweeted yesterday, pro-Trump radio host Seb Gorka is in a super awkward position this afternoon because over the past couple of weeks, he kept telling his audience that Trump wasn't going to return come August, and now his audience is starting to turn on him for not being pro-Trump enough. Gorka, who hawks Mike Lindell's MyPillows but tosses cold water on his voter fraud theories, is now talking about blocking ultra-maga callers' numbers with whom he doesn't agree. So Seb Gorka, Seb Gorka is now in a position where he is insufficiently pro-Trump. Um, that that is not that that would speak against. Now maybe in a week he'll he'll start talking about how Trump is right that he could be reinstated. I that's the pattern. Okay, but here's here's the thing. So remember in early 2017, 20, my 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 one time friend Louise Mensch. So Louise Mensch. Uh, former uh, conservative MP in, in, in London, moves to America, runs a website called Heat Street, uh, chiclet novelist, interesting person, very, very intense, turns very anti-Trump, uh, gets a lot of followers in 2016, 2017. They closed down Heat Street. She starts going absolutely bananas and she starts proffering these theories that Trump has been secretly arrested remember this Trump was a he Trump it it gives her no it gives her no um joy to report that the marshal of the supreme court was going to go and arrest Trump and put him in a jail in the basement of the supreme court right so there were people who started saying oh my god this is all good. so I bring this up only to say that the Louise Mensch was an elected politician in Great Britain, okay? Came to America, granted, not, you know, not a constitutional American constitutional scholar, but she's not, you know, the my pillow guy. And her hatred of Trump and her total emotion like leads her into genuine mental illness i think by the way she's already said that she has mental illness issues so i'm not saying but i mean that the public expression of a kind of cons- weird conspiracy theory there is a marshal of the supreme court he doesn't have arrest powers there are no there isn't a jail whatever you want to call it the the promulgation of the trump will be reinstated in august theory there are two ways that this can go because he's not going to be reinstated in august so it can be the Heaven's Gate cult, right? Where they're all standing there and it's August 12th, 2012 and the world is supposed to end and they're standing on this mountaintop in Arizona and the world doesn't end. What happened to that cult? 
I don't know. You don't know. It vanished. It went away because it, it's 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 the thing that it said was going to happen didn't happen. So that could happen to the Trump is going to be reinstated in August, or the theory gets even crazier, and this is where it's particularly dangerous for Trump and his apologists, which is that they'll say it did happen. You see, they'll say that he was reinstated as president, but it's a secret. And that there's a secret thing going on where Biden, Trump is actually secretly president. Biden is a front. This is all, you know, Philip K. Dick, like Biden is some flat, it's a Philip K. Dick novel. Trump is actually running everything behind the scenes. We're going, we're going to blow up the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I don't know what they're going to say. And this will go on and on and on. And at some point, Trump will, it will become an act of madness to be a supporter of Trump going forward. That, 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 ha- the only way that happens is if Trump embraces the theory and then, of course, nothing comes of it. You know what the best novelistic twist would be is if Melania did a sit down uh, in-depth interview with Vogue and just, you know, with a big fashion shoot attached and, and let slip that the Donald was not all there. Just, right. you know, little hints here and there. And, you know, this yeah. <laughs> let that get trickle downstream. Yeah. But what you're describing is the QAnon ph- phenomenon in which these people sort of expect an event to happen. It doesn't happen. And then they talk themselves into thinking that it's going to be followed by another event. Or as you say, it sort of did happen. My question is, if Donald Trump is still secretly president, is he term limited in 2024? No. And here's the thing. No. And here's why. Because these complete lunatics think that there's some sort of a clause where a president who's treated very unfairly gets stoppage time and gets gets to move, you know, sort of a, a, gets an extra quarter that he was denied. In this there year. is so one. He's going to be president well into 2025 just on some sort of a technicality. One one quick point, though, there is a genuine and I don't think ir- irrational concern slash fear that this idea that he should be reinstated and, and the set setting of a particular deadline, which is what happened with January 6th, as you recall, could encourage the, the, the more violently inclined among Trump supporters to do something again, to do something well, it about it. It doesn't even have to be supporters. That's the horror of these trends. Right? I mean, and we talked about this the other day. It could be one guy. It only has to be one guy that goes and shoots up the congressional softball game. Or one guy who shows up at Comet Pizza with a gun and gets in and starts shooting people. I mean, it doesn't have to be many. Assassins, psychotic assassins, get done what they need to get done. Most of our experience with them in in American history is not that they are politically motivated, but that, as was true of the Gabby Giffords shooter, that they are paranoid schizophrenics who have other things going on that they are, you know, he was concerned about grammar, right? The guy who shot Gabby Giffords said there was something going on where they were screwing around with grammar. Um, it only has to be one guy. And, and, and will Trump be responsible if he walks around saying, I am going to be reinstated as president or they have, they, what, da, 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 and then somebody goes and actually kills five people at the, on the Capitol grounds or something? Yeah, he'll be responsible. I, all this stuff over the last six months about how Trump bears no responsibility for January 6th because A, 
it wasn't so bad. B, if it was bad, it wasn't his fault. C, they were tourists. B, they they have a secret. You know, they're they're keeping five hundred people in solitary confinement, and you know, it's like Devil's Island. All those people should run for office and throw everybody out because they are living in an American gulag, and all of that. This stuff that is now being promulgated and proffered uh, in 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 once respectable quarters on the right. Um, they are now on a knife's edge with this because if Trump said, "Look, I lost this. You know, this election was stolen from me. I'm I'm going to come back in 2024 and take what is rightfully mine and yours," that would be a rational approach, even if it's not true that the election was stolen from him. That's all he has to do is say, "Biden's a terrible president." They stole the election from me. I'm coming back, and we're going to restore what 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 should have been in the first place. If he goes into how he is president now, and and the reinstatement doctrine will get, and they're going to prevent him from doing that, all kinds of ancillary things are going to flow from that, and people are going to be sorry what they said about Liz Cheney because Liz Cheney will be a relatively moderate voice. I mean, I'm serious. Like, what did Mike Pence say that was so different from what Liz Cheney said? That that's my that's where I think we can look at what what you quoted Noah about Mike Pence and say, huh, you know, something big happened here. Like this was because Mike Pence is not you know a heroic voice of independence in the Republican Party. He is an oleaginous Babbitt suck up blatherskite. And if he has or if he has taken this moment to say, maybe I'm charting an independent course here myself, being the first guy, the closest guy to Trump, but the first guy who's gonna say, Woo, sorry, I'm not going along with this, that could be very meaningful. I mean, I don't think it means he'll be president, because I don't think he'll ever be president, but it, it's it's politically meaningful. And with that. Uh, We will bid you adieu over the weekend. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.